0: Good morning. morning. Great to see all of you here today on this very sunshine filled day. Carmen, great to have you always out visiting with us. Um, Great to anybody who's visiting online as well, who's watching us online. Welcome. Um, Our reading for today is going to be Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each, of, each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's our reading for today. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we come to you today, Lord. We come now to be restored and renewed in You, to receive from You all the grace and mercy that that we so desperately need this day. We honor You as our sovereign God and we surrender every aspect of our life today, completely and totally to You. We give You our spirit, our soul, our body, our heart, our mind, and our will. We ask that Your Holy Spirit restores us in You. Oh God, you alone are worthy of all of our worship here this morning. Our hearts, our devotion, and our praise. All our trust and, our, and all the glory of our life. Lord, we love you, we worship you, and we give ourselves over to you today, Father. Search our heart and take out that what doesn't belong. Today and every day of our life is all about you. We belong to you. We ask for forgiveness of, of everything, Lord, that we just did wrong. Today, and this week, and this past, whenever, our whole lives, Lord, we ask that you forgive us. We renounce our sins in the powerful name of Jesus. Lord, please search our hearts today and reveal to us what you are working in our, in our lives to do, that we may obey you, Father. Grant us the grace of, of, of your healing and your deliverance and your holiness. And again, a deep and true repentance, Father. Lord, Father God, we we thank you for loving us and choosing us even before the world was, was made. Lord, thank you for the Bible, for our guide, for our life. We ask that you are here and present with us this morning and that you would take away anything that may distract us from today's message and from hearing your word and worshiping with our voices. We pray for Pastor Duncan that his words would match what you want us to hear this morning. Give him wisdom, clarity, conviction, and boldness. We pray for our church body that the Holy Spirit would do a work in each and every one of us and that we would leave here differently than we came. We ask for healing and revival. Lord, we need revival in our churches. And we ask that you would come strongly in that and to do that, Father. And if we're part of that revival, make us make us Send us, Lord. Send us to do it and help us to be in quiet and listen to what you want us to do. Lord, we ask for that, you would, that we would all stand up for the word of God, that each one of us, as we have opportunities, would spread your gospel from here into the nations. Lord, we pray for a new chapter, same gospel. We pray that you would show us what part it is that you want us to play in the accomplishment of this vision for our church. Lord, speak to us. This is an exciting time for our church, God, and we just pray for your presence. Uh, we pray for some people in our church, Lord. We pray for Dan Zwicker. We pray for healing and that you'd be working with the doctors through his cancer diagnosis. Um, Father, we also pray for Gloria uh, Zwicker, uh, her sister-in-law who who was hospitalized with some health issues. Father, we pray for healing as, as well as wisdom for the doctors who are involved as well. Father God, we we pray for Steve Hole. We we're, we come with thankful hearts. We thank you for uh, the, the the surgery that he that has gone well this past week on his wrist and elbow. We pray uh, that his cataract surgery would go equally as well next Wednesday. Give him peace and security in your loving arms, Father. We ask that you be with him. We pray for Karen Spore today for an upcoming procedure that she has tomorrow, Lord in Sturgeon Bay. That you would be with her. That you would give her peace and safety. Uh, in travel, and, and that um, that your peace would be upon her. Father, we pray right now for all others who are going through difficult times, and I, I believe every one of us in some way is, Lord, because we are on this side of heaven, so therefore we, we, we experience sin in a sinful world, and we just ask that you would be around our church family and their families and anyone who doesn't know Christ. Father, we pray, that's first and foremost, God, what, we're prayer, what we have to pray for, is for salvation for them people. We pray for Abandoned Life Mission, that you would raise up workers to fit the needs of their growing families. Um, Father, God, we just ask that you move mightily in that way. We pray for Teresa, that you would um, produce more resources for her to help her in in that, Father, and thank you for her tenaciousness in in the mission. Um, We pray for Carmen Chug. God, thank you for her. Thank you for helping her, sending her out. Uh, We pray that you give her safe travels back home. We thank you for her continue, continual spreading of the gospel initiated by you in Italy. And thank you for all the other missionaries that are working tirelessly, Lord, to do your will. We pray that you just, as they are all over the mission field, even the ones that are here locally, Father, we pray for them. All of us should be missionaries. All of us are missionaries because, because of the, the gospel that you gave us to do in, in, on this, uh, in this world. Um, Lord, we pray for um, just the continued, for discipleship of, of the believers in our families, in our church family, and everywhere, Father. We just ask that you continue strengthening us, um, giving us the will to do what you have called us to do. We also pray today, Lord, for those who mourn the death of Betty Perez. Father, we pray for healing for the family. Uh, and for Larry, um, her husband. Father, we just ask that you you just come around the family now and as they grieve for her, Father, that um, you would give them peace and and that you'd give them um, your love that they would feel. Father, we just thank you for your sovereign, uh, for just being sovereign and that we don't have to worry because you're in charge of everything. We just need to follow what you ask us to do. Father, we pray we all do a better job with that. And um, we just ask that you'd be be here with us the rest of this service. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.
1: We return, obviously, to the book of Ephesians and to the passage that is one of the better-known in Paul's literature, as well as one of the more controversial, and that is the one that you just heard this teaching on marriage. Earlier in this chapter, Paul has set the table for marriage by the command that believers would be filled with the Spirit. And as you follow the flow of Paul's argument, it's very clear that he's saying that everything in terms of your marriage and in terms of how you treat your kids All of that is rooted in being filled with the Spirit, being under the direct influence of the Holy Spirit. And the implication for today's text is, in order for husbands and wives to relate to one another, that needs to be supernatural. As we get to see this teaching, you'll see that even more clearly. And supernatural doesn't happen apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Marriages that grow to increasingly resemble this model that Paul lays out here, That doesn't happen unless the Holy Spirit is involved. Last week, we spent time looking into verses 22 to 24. Paul reveals God's plans for wives related to their particular roles within marriage. And we spent some time tearing down some contemporary misconceptions surrounding Paul's command that wives submit to their husbands. We saw that a wife's submission to her husband is never to be coerced, but is voluntary. It's not optional, but it is voluntary. It comes from within their heart. It's not because the husband orders her around. That's not the way that word works. It's also value neutral. That is, her submission says absolutely nothing about her value. She's equally created in the image of God with her husband. And it's vertical. That is, her submission to her husband is to be offered as submission to God. It's part of her worship. As it relates to what submission looks like in the flow of daily life, we said that this submission entailed, among other things, a wife supporting and respecting and following her husband. And we explained a bit about what that meant. Today we come to Paul's commands to husbands and his explanation of that command as he uses this stunning illustration to reveal what he means by husbands love your wives. As we think about how Paul illustrates to husbands what obedience to that command looks like, we see that this could not be more radical. You can't miss the fact as well, when you've read the piece on wives, which is 22 to 24, and the section on husbands is 25 to 33. Okay, the husband's treatment's quite a bit longer, about three times longer than the wives which should strike you as a bit ominous, and indeed it is. Let's look at verse 25. It says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This passage is familiar to many of us because it's read frequently at weddings. And of course, the danger with any text that's familiar to us is the familiarity we have with it can cause us to miss how absolutely radical this is. How strange this must have sounded to the husbands when this letter was read to the church at Ephesus. Think about it. Paul calls the wives to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So the call to the wife, as you recall, is to submit to her husband because God has given him spiritual headship over the wife. So when Paul begins this section on husbands, in light of what he's just commanded to wives, we tend to expect Paul to give a parallel treatment, okay? Like, husbands, you faithfully exercise your headship over your wives. I mean, that's exactly parallel to what he said to the wives. And so we can easily miss just how powerful it would have been for those first-century husbands to hear Husbands, love your wives. So that's not parallel, but it is parallel. This morning we are going to spend the rest of our time just unpacking this one verse, because there's so much here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. For today we're going to look at just two qualities of this love that he commands husbands to have for their wives. We're going to answer, hopefully at least a little bit, the question, what's the nature of, of this love that husbands are to have for their wives. What's it look like? This first quality of love that Paul commands husbands to have for their wives is, it's monogamous. Okay, Paul implies this by saying husbands love your wives. And that was not unimportant because he's speaking to a number of people who come from a pagan background who might have more than one husband. This obviously means that husbands are to love their wives only and exclusively their wives with this spousal love. So this is a call to a monogamous love, but Christianity is the only faith in the world where monogamy has multiple levels. That is, a New Testament understanding of monogamy is far more than simply not breaking the seventh commandment against adultery. Paul's command here assumes that husbands shouldn't commit adultery defined as sinfully establishing a one flesh flesh sexual relationship with a woman who's not your wife. But as we think about the New Testament understanding of adultery, a text we quoted last week regarding wives also applies to adultery. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Well, you may wonder what those verses have to do with adultery, because that's not specifically what he's addressing in 1 Corinthians, but the implications are phenomenal for adultery here, because when Paul says that husbands and wives have authority over each other's body, but not their own body, that implies that when someone commits adultery, he or she is using a body, their own body, that is under the sexual authority of the spouse that they are sinning against. That means that adultery is the ultimate betrayal because you are sinning against your spouse by using the body over which he or she has authority in which you do not have authority. This is one reason why this is such a wicked sin. It also implies that adulterous husbands and wives have no right to keep their adultery hidden from their body because they were using their spouse's body, the one they have authority over, to sin with. You don't have authority to keep that from them because it's their body that you were sinning with. Adultery is usurping the authority that your spouse has over your body by using their body, quote-unquote, to commit adultery against them. So the first level of monogamy is sexual fidelity, but just underneath that layer of infidelity, is the level that often immediately precedes that one and that is husbands should not enter into non-sexual inappropriate relationships with women who are not their wives. Most men and women don't wake up one morning and decide they're going to have an affair. Most of the time adultery is the final and tragic decision. It's part of a longer process that begins frequently when married Men and women form unwise relationships in settings where they find themselves together for quite a while, and they share their hearts with one another. It's not an accident that sharing your heart with a person, not your spouse, can sometimes lead to sharing your bed with that person. God's wired us in such a way so that when we emotionally connect with a person of the opposite sex, that can easily lead to sexual temptation and sin. So we have to exercise not only physical or sexual self-control, if we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church, but also emotional self-control. Sharing your heart with a person of the opposite sex who's not your spouse is emotionally adulterous in the sense that your spouse would feel violated if she knew that you were sharing that level of emotional intimacy with another woman. Those levels of adultery are biblical, stated or implied in the Bible, Old Testament, but Jesus, when he comes, he adds another layer to the Jewish understanding of adultery, You talk to an Orthodox Jew, they don't believe this next teaching Jesus gives because it's not in the Old Testament. But Jesus says it. He says in Matthew chapter 5, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That means that Paul's command to monogamy includes not only an implied prohibition against physical adultery, but also lusting after women because Jesus says that too is adulterous. It's another expression, another level of adultery. It's adultery of the heart. That means that men should never excuse or in any way treat cavalierly sexual lusting after someone because of what he said, if for no other reason his warning. If your right eye causes you to sin, he's speaking about lust here. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members, that your whole body go into hell. So Jesus says something that's just absolutely radical. I'm sure the people of his time thought they must have misheard him him, because he says, if you are not warring against your lust, and if you die having not warred against your lust, you're not a Christian, you go to hell. This includes lusting after people you see in person, but it also obviously implies in print or on websites, and today, men and women, through this incredibly easy access to pornography we have, Are destroying not only their marriages, but also their souls. Just listen to these statistics on pornography in the church from a November 2020 article from Mission Frontiers. Studies reveal that 68% of church-going men and over 50% of pastors view porn on a regular basis. That's about once a month. 68% of church-going men, 50% of pastors. Of young Christian adults, 18 to 24 years old, 76% actively search for porn. 33% of women aged 25 and under search for porn at least once per month. Only 13% of self-identified Christian women say they never watch porn. 87% of Christian women have watched porn. 57% of pastors say porn addiction is the most damaging issue in their congregation. This temptation isn't just for men, but certainly it's true in light of Ephesians 5. To the degree that we're involved in pornography, we're certainly not loving our wives as Christ loves the church. If you need help with this sin, you can find freedom. But typically, especially if you've been in it for any length of time, you're not going to find it on your own. You need to humble yourself, find a Christian brother, pastor, who you can confess your sin to, pray for stay accountable with. God can get you free, but it takes a long time sometimes. The first quality of love that husbands are to have for their wives is this love is to be monogamous, which of course can be breached at several levels we've seen. A second quality of this love that Paul commands from husbands to their wives is that it is miraculous. Okay, as we said earlier, Uh, When Paul implies that being filled with the Holy Spirit is a necessary precondition to faithfully living out our marital roles, it's obvious that a husband's love for his wife has to be miraculous. We have to remember that even more stunning to first century men than Paul's command for husbands to love their wives would have been the kind of love that Paul reveals. Sometimes these three kinds of love in the Greek language are overstated, but we don't want to understate them, because in this command to love, Paul uses the Greek word agape. Many of you know that agape is a particular kind of love, and when you understand the kind of love it is, it's very clear why this is not possible apart from the equipping of the Holy Spirit. For a husband to love his wife with agape love means that a husband's love for his wife is not to be dependent on anything in the wife. That is, you don't love your wife because of anything in her, but because of something that God has done in you. In marriage counseling, counselors will sometimes ask husbands, Why do you love your wife? Frequently, the responses are things like what you would expect. She's pretty, or she has a great personality, or she's got lots of energy, or she's a great mom, or she's talented, or any number of other qualities are frequently given. None of those responses are evil, and certainly part of loving your wife as Christ loves the church is encouraging her with frequent affirmations like that. But none of those personal qualities a wife brings to a marriage are to be the basis for a husband's love. When Paul commands men to agape their wives, he's revealing that the basis, the ground of a husband's love for his wife is because she's my wife. This only makes sense, would you consider, that some of the marriages in the first century were arranged marriages. Now, this is not an argument for arranged marriages, but that Paul means That that means that Paul is commanding some men who barely knew their wives when they got married. Okay, If you barely know the woman you're about to be married to, then the only possible basis for your love for her is because she's the one God has for you. Husbands, love your wives because God made her your wife. He joined you together in a one-flesh union. That's why you love her. Ultimately, our love is not dependent upon her age or her health or appearance or weight or intelligence or sense of humor or personality or how skilled she may be in this or that area. Our love is not in proportion to how well they submit to us. Just as we said last week, a wife's submission is not in proportion to how well the, the husband loves the wife No, this love is unconditional. Husbands, love your wives because you're married to them. And when that occurs, that's not only miraculous, it's also immensely practical because the only thing about a husband or a wife that is permanent and unchanging in a lifelong marriage is you're married to them. Think about it, when a young man stands at the front of a church and promises his bride that he's going to love her through all of those things, no matter what, he has no idea what he's promising. He has no idea what that promise includes. He can't predict what's going to enter that life, that marriage. What if on their honeymoon she's in a terrible accident of some sort, leaves her horribly maimed, and a quadriplegic? His wedding day promise has to be dependent on the miraculous power of God to enable him to carry that promise through, no matter what those completely unforeseen circumstances might hold. Even the most well-preserved middle-aged wife does not look like she did on the day she got married. Like their aging husbands. W- wives are changing, and if a husband's love is rooted in something like her appearance, then his love is rooted on shifting sand. But if by the power of the Holy Spirit, the ultimate reason you love your wife is because you're married to her, then your love can survive anything short of death. If Paul's command for this agape love weren't enough to convince you that this is a calling for a miraculous kind of love, what he says next removes all shadow of a doubt. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Again, Don't allow the familiarity with this text to obscure the radical nature of what he's saying to husbands here. By comparing the love of Christ has for his bride, the church, with a husband's love for his wife, he is giving as his standard for a husband's love the most powerful, the most dramatic, the most striking, the most demanding, the most noble, the most virtuous, Example, it is possible to give to illustrate the kind of love a husband is to have for his wife. He's commanding husbands to love their wives with God-like love. A love that reflects Jesus' love, but not just in the abstract. By the tense he uses here, he's talking about a specific expression of Jesus' love as the model for husband. And that is, of course, the love that he displayed for his church when, for her, he died a humiliating and agonizing death on a Roman instrument of torture. In terms of explaining this kind of love that husbands have to have for their wives, Paul is scraping the Milky Way here. It's simply inconceivable to issue a more demanding call on a husband than this. There's no higher standard possible For a husband's love. If a Christian father has a son of marrying age and he thinks he's in love with a woman, there are many appropriate questions for that father to give to that son to help him think through whether or not this woman is the one God has for him. The first question is always the same, is she a believer, follower of Jesus Christ? If the answer to that question is no, there's no need for any more questions. But if the answer is correct, arguably, the next question in light of this text that the father should ask the son is, well, son, what will you die for? That's the question I was asked when I was thinking about getting engaged to Michelle. The brother in the Lord said, well, are you going to die for? And if he hesitates for any length of time... That disqualifies, at least for the moment, that woman from being his wife. Because although that kind of self-sacrificing love obviously grows through the course of the marriage, it would be foolish for a young man to assume that he'd found a wife that God had for him if he wasn't willing to rapidly say, well, of course I would die for her. This requirement for this kind of love for a wife from a husband is unique. To Christianity. It's only in Christian marriage where the husband is to reflect Christ's love for his bride, the church, that there is a willingness to lay your life down. Christ laid down his life for the church because he's the good shepherd. He says in John ten eleven, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Shepherding always implies a willingness to die. At the top of any job description for any shepherd is the willingness to die for the sheep. That's true whether it's a shepherd standing out in the midst of a field full of helpless woolen animals, or Christ and his flock, the church, or the elders of a church and the flock that's been entrusted to them. All are called to have a willingness to lay down their lives for the sheep. Sheep and Christian husbands are the loving family shepherds over their wives, And the baseline expectation for a shepherd is a willingness to die for the sheep. We saw that this call for agape love is very practical because spouses change over time, but this command to love your wives as Christ loved the church is also intensely practical. That's because most husbands never experience a literal call to die for their wives, but the command to be willing to die for our wives, also implies a willingness to do everything short of physical death. It would be an utter contradiction to say to your wife, I will die for you, but I'm not going to take out the trash. (laughs) The commitment to die for our wives includes a commitment to die to ourselves and our desires for the sake of our wives, and that, fellow husbands, is where the rubber meets the road. Let's think through some very practical examples. These are a bit stereotypic, maybe even sexist, but for the sake of argument, just go with me here, okay? It's date night, and you husband have agreed to go to a movie with your wife. And there is a Marvel comic superhero movie that appeals to you and a rom-com, romantic comedy that does not in the least appeal to you, but very much appeals to your wife. What does dying for your wife look like in that situation? You know what it looks like. (laughs) Or you hire a babysitter to watch your kids on a Saturday afternoon because you've both agreed that while you're at the fishing opener, your wife's going to take some time to get out of the house and spend time to have a rare conversation with an adult over coffee. At the last minute, the babysitter calls in sick, and there are no replacements. What does dying for your wife look like in that situation? Or your mother-in-law is in failing health and you and your wife agree to pick up stakes and move to her city so that you can take care of her until she dies. A week after you move out of the blue, you receive an offer for your absolute dream job in another state that includes a significant increase in salary. What does dying for your wife look like? in that situation. Or finally, you've been saving for three years to buy a boat to replace your old, well-worn fishing boat with a better one. Two days before you pick up the boat that you've spent months researching to get the maximum bang for your buck, your wife's car breaks down for the third time in the month and leaves her stranded out in the middle of nowhere and the mechanic says the repair is going to cost $3,000. What does dying for your wife look like in that situation? And the answer is not to put the boat on a credit card. (laughs) You see, most husbands assume that if needed, they would of course run into a burning house to save their wife from the flames, and maybe they would. But if you won't watch a rom-com with your wife over a superhero movie or miss a fishing opener to stay home with your sick kid while your wife has coffee with a girlfriend or surrender a potentially great job to take care of your wife's mom or buy your wife a car instead of yourself a boat. If you will not do those kind of lesser things for your wife, then you have no evidence to prove your assumption that you would do the greater thing and physically die for her. You have no evidence for that. We probably all heard conversations among women about their husbands. They're probably too common today. If it's a group of women who are married to these kinds of husbands that Paul is referencing here, those conversations are fun to listen to because you hear things like, my husband is so thoughtful, or my husband is so sweet, or my husband is so patient with me, he's so good to me. I could hardly believe he would do that for me, but he did. Those conversations are a blessing. Unfortunately, just as often, maybe more, you hear some of the other women in that setting say things like, I could never ask my husband to do that for me. I wouldn't think about asking him that. My husband would laugh in my face if I suggested that. Are you kidding? It would never occur to my husband that he should do that for me. Maybe the saddest thing in those conversations is to observe the women who don't say anything. They just stare at the ground in envied silence because sadly their husbands don't know the first thing about loving them is Christ loves the church. And they live that way all the time. Husbands, when your wives have that kind of discussion about their husbands, how do they talk about you? Are they bragging on you? Are they laughing uncomfortably at the prospect of you ever being like that? Or are they staring into the ground in silence? The command from God is, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How are you giving yourself up for your wives? No husband or wife gets this perfectly. We're all flawed. We can all be lousy wives and lousy husbands, but husbands, are you in the arena? Are you fighting the fight to love your wives as Christ loved the church? Are you warring against your selfish impulses as you seek to love Christ and your wives this way? If you're not, The response is not simply to feel bad about your failings and maybe resolve to do better. That never works. We're talking about repentance here from being a self-centered husband to being a Christ-like husband. And that miracle will not occur by simply resolving to do better. This kind of change requires a change of heart. It requires a fundamental change in how you view your marriage and how you view your wife and how you view your responsibility to her before God. The only way those changes occur is if you allow Jesus Christ through your repentance, Jesus Christ, the great bridegroom and our good shepherd, to express his self-sacrificing love through you by the power of the Spirit. Humble yourself and he'll give you grace. For those who are believers, that means coming to him and again, Seeking repentance, coming to him, admitting your failings as a husband, seeking his grace, and don't put this off. Because the good news is that God wants this far more than you do for you. And we can trust in that. It's his word. For many husbands, this means repenting of adulterous sin, whether that's sexually sinning with another woman or emotional infidelity or infidelity of the mind through pornography. Some here today haven't received Christ. This means for you coming to Christ for the first time, grieving over your sins against God and against your wife and repenting and trusting in Christ because his death cleanse you from all of your sins and enable you to know freedom, freedom from guilt, but also freedom by the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to love your wife the way God intends. But not just that sin, all of your sins can be forgiven. If you'll come to him and just say, cry out to Jesus, say, I need you, I'm a sinner. Can't do this. And sometimes I don't want to do it. So save me, God, and make me one of your own. May God give us the grace to live out this kind of marriage for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Our Father in God, this is heavy stuff. And I really wish that I could say that the reason I can say this is because I practice it so well, and God, you know I'd be a liar if I said that. But it doesn't matter because it's in your word. And so, Father, I pray for myself and I pray for all the other men here. I pray, God, that you would give us grace to repent of our selfishness and that we would stop looking around at other men who are lousy to their wives and making that our standard, but God instead look to Jesus and see how he loves his church, and he died for the church. And so God, I pray that you'd, God, give us grace to repent. And Father, for those men here today, and they've been reminded again, they're not where they need to be with you. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict them, that you would draw them to the cross, that they would receive cleansing from their sin by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you, God, for this standard that you have for Christian marriages because it gives us hope that we can be like this and know the joy of the Lord is our strength. God, make it so, we pray, for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. Amen. We're going to
0: end our